At this time, we have a kids' class that is available just in the back of the larger room here. And kids, if you uh, haven't already headed that way, you're more than welcome to do so. And uh, just to make everyone aware, if, if you don't know, each Sunday we offer a fully staffed nursery, and that meets in the room right over here on the corner. And the parents are more than welcome to drop your kids off there if you would like. And uh, so grateful for all the young people that God has put here in our church. Well, I want to invite you at this time to join me in Mark's gospel in the ninth chapter, and we'll be concluding this chapter here today, verses 42 to 50. Uh, Do you remember the story of Aaron Ralston? I know that I've shared it with you before. I don't think it was that long ago that I mentioned it, but in 2003, he was hiking alone in a canyon and accidentally dislodged an 800-pound boulder above him that came down and pinned his arm against the canyon wall, and he couldn't free himself. So for five days, he sipped on the little bit of water that he had. He slowly ate two burritos and essentially prepared to die. But wanting to live no matter the cost, he decided that, okay, like something drastic has to be done. And so he torqued his body against that large rock and he snapped his radius and his ulna. Can you imagine? Just brutal. And then he started cutting through his arm with the dull two-inch blade of his multi-tool because for him in that moment, it was literally do or die. He salted his arm for over an hour, cutting through skin, tendons, a major artery, even a nerve. And finally, he was free. And it was that radical choice to amputate his own arm in that crazy way that saved his life. Now, that's a pretty radical story. I think it's one of those human interest stories that just grabs your attention because of how radical and insane it is. And yet Jesus uh, grabs an illustration just like that to help us grasp the problem of our own sin and the radical action that is necessary as a result, that the radical action that must be taken against our sin. Man cannot live. You cannot live or experience life attached to your sin. In Mark chapter 9, Jesus is focused on training his 12 disciples. And in the second half of the chapter that we've been looking at, um, Jesus, everything he says seems to be direct, um, radical, shocking at times, maybe even disturbing and at times upsetting. But everything that Jesus says is truth. And because Jesus is so serious here, you must listen to him and what he is saying. I am not asking you this morning to listen to me. I am begging you, listen to Jesus and what he says in these verses. Let me read them to you, Mark 9, 42 to 49. Jesus said, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin... It would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where their worm does not die and their fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good. But if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Uh, There are three matters here in this text that I I think we see Jesus takes very seriously. And so we're going to work our way through these three matters, uh, giving special attention or focused attention to the second one. Uh, Here's the first one. The the first matter that we see Jesus taking very seriously. It is your influence. Uh, You must guard your influence. It's very, very important. Look back at verse 42. Jesus said, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. Jesus, back in verse 37, I believe it was, used the idea of a child uh, very broadly to refer to those of little power, status, and prominence. And he's doing something kind of similar to that, I believe, in this verse as well. 
And what he's doing is making clear how serious it is to him when a person does anything to anyone, uh, great or small, to turn that person away from faith in Jesus Christ. It is a grievous thing to encourage someone toward the path of sin, toward the path of hell, and away from Jesus with your words or with your actions. Jesus says it would be better for him if a great millstone, not just any millstone, a great one, the kind that a mule would turn to crush grain, if a millstone like that were hung around his neck and he were cast or thrown into the sea. I mean, that's a pretty powerful statement. Like zero tolerance, no mercy here. What Jesus is talking about could take on many, many different forms. Perhaps teachers at a religious institution that... Uh, teaching that to believe in the substitutionary death of Jesus, Jesus' death for you on the cross, that's folly. Or professing Christian leaders who teach Jesus for years only then for great sin to be exposed, revealing massive hypocrisy, causing people who, who were interacting with that person in that ministry, that church, to, to just want to turn away and want, I'm done. I don't want anything more to do with Jesus. I don't want anything more to do with the church. Or professing Christians who gain great trust and then perpetrate horrible crimes against people. Again, causing them to, I, I don't want any of this. Or maybe something more simple, a massively hypocritical home where you see uh, walk and talk drastically diverge and go two separate directions. The walk and talk don't match. You know, we, we go to church and we talk the talk, but once we get home, like it's a lot different. Maybe causing the children who grow up to, in that home to say, this, this Christian stuff's a joke. I don't want this. When I'm out of here, I'm done. The crime that Jesus mentions certainly could take on many different forms, and it is terrible. And whoever commits it must be willing to stand before Jesus, Jesus himself, the judge of all the earth. Because Jesus is so serious, I think you want to listen to what he's saying here about your influence and about guarding it. And you want to use your words, you want to use your actions, you want to use your life to point people towards Jesus, not away from him. But I think what Jesus is getting at is this. This evil that he speaks of in verse 42, this is not <laughs> the kind of evil or the sort of thing that an authentic follower of Jesus Christ would ever do. Only someone on their way to hell would do such a thing. And Jesus is saying, that's the destiny here of this person. So one of the things that Jesus seems to be getting at is this. Are you the real deal? Are you genuinely a disciple of Jesus Christ? And he may be using a very drastic situation to raise that question, but he seems to be raising it. Are you the real deal? Are you really a, a Christian? And that's exactly where Jesus seems to go next in the following verses. Our second matter that Jesus takes very seriously, it's your sin. You must amputate your sin. Why don't I just read these verses again? Verses 43 to 48. And as I read it this time, just take note that the very heart of these verses is the language of cut it off and tear it out. Cut it off and tear it out. Verse 43, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Jesus just made... Uh, the same radical point three times in a row for impact. And essentially, Jesus is saying, your sin is serious. You must amputate your sin. You must deal with your, your sin. No mercy. Cut it out. No truce with sin. Get rid of it. No, well, I didn't, I'm not committing this horrible sin. I'm just sort of you know, mine's not that bad. No, 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 Jesus says, it must go. Before we get into this section, 
I want to offer a few clarifying thoughts. One would be that this is not a literal call to mutilate your body. Uh, elsewhere in the Bible, uh, God speaks against that, teaches against it. What Jesus is doing is using intentional overstatement to drive home a very simple and very, very powerful point. And he is using various parts of the body in kind of a representative sort of way. In a sense, we might say that we have sins of the hands, and we have sins of the feet, and we have sins of the eyes, and so on. And yet we also need to remember that Jesus clearly taught just a few chapters back that the problem always traces back to our hearts. When it comes to sin, we might say this, the heart of the problem is always the problem of the heart. Jesus is simply making a powerful point about the seriousness of your sin and the radical action that must be taken against it and against whatever would lead you into it. And another clarification, these words very much seem to be for every single person in the room. I would encourage you not to think that these words are for a certain group of people. You read a word like hell and you go, well, this passage is for people who are not professing Christians. I'd encourage you, don't, don't approach this passage that way. Don't think that these words are for a certain group of people, those who have professed Christ or those who have not professed Christ. In this text, Jesus makes no such distinction. If you look at his original audience, it's even hard to tell. Who are these people? These words are for every single person in the room. They are for you. And uh, you'll note here that Jesus is not taking the time to make a bunch of complex and nuanced theological statements and, and that sort of thing. In verses 43 to 48, his statements rather are simple and crisp and powerful. And so I believe my job as a preacher is to preach to you in such a way that actually reflects the text itself. If I simply preach the text as it is presented to us here in God's word, then I believe every single person in the room feels the weight of it without exception. Don't think that these words are for a certain group of people. As I said, they are for you. They are for me. Sin is serious. You must amputate your sin. And Jesus is going to put two very powerful arguments on the table for that. And his first argument is this. It is the final destiny of the sinner. There is a day coming, a day of judgment for all of mankind. And on that appointed day, you must personally stand before the king of all kings and the Lord of all lords and give an account of your life. You will personally stand before the judge of all the earth. There is no person who will not. And on that day, Jesus Christ, the Son of Man, will pronounce a final, eternal, irreversible verdict about your eternal destiny. And as we look at this text, what we see is that there are two possibilities, two very different possibilities. No more, no less, simply two. Either one you will enter, in the language of this text, life or the kingdom of God. Very simply, we often think of this in terms of heaven. Or the alternative to that, you will be cast, according to this text, into the burning fires of hell. Two very different options. And as we look at this passage, Jesus is very clear that the final destiny of the sinner is hell. Again, your sin is so serious. Uh, three times in these verses, Jesus mentions going or being cast into hell. Just look at this in verse 43 as, as an example. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go where? To go to hell. In, this, in these verses, Jesus repeatedly draws a straight and direct line uh, from a person's sin whoosh, straight to their eternal destiny. What keeps a person from heaven? Why do people go to, he to hell? Well, according to this passage, it's sin. And what does this passage here teach us about hell? Well, 
to state the obvious from this passage, hell is real. And I think it's interesting that it's Jesus that's the one telling us about this. Jesus spoke about hell more than anyone in the Bible. If there's a hellfire and brimstone preacher in the New Testament, who is it? Is it Paul? Is it Peter? Is it John? No, it's Jesus. Hell is real. And its presence means that sin, including your sin, is unfathomably serious. Hell is real and hell is horrible. Uh, Jesus describes hell, if you look down at verse 48, as a place where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And in fact, Jesus gave us an illustration of hell that's built right into the word that he used for it. It's the word Gehenna, uh, which means Valley of Hinnom. This was a place south of Jerusalem that was essentially, I think you could just think of it as a dump, where refuse was burned. It was a place of sewage, garbage, and animal carcasses. And the fires there at that place just burned round the clock, consuming whatever was cast into that valley. It was a burning worm and maggot-infested place where the fires just never went out. And let me assure you that what Jesus is referring to here, hell, is far worse than any illustration or image could ever convey. Jesus says that the fires of hell are unquenchable. They cannot and they will not ever be put out. The worms and the maggots there will never die and their feasting will never cease. In other passages of Scripture, again, Jesus is the one that, that, that keeps talking about hell. And in other passages of Scripture, Jesus described hell in further detail. He described hell as outer darkness. This is a place without light. Elsewhere, Jesus described hell as a fiery furnace where there will be, time and time again, in the language of Jesus, weeping and gnashing together of teeth. There are a few things, I, I think any of us who have experienced even a minor burn, there are a few things that hurt as, as badly as a burn. Hell is a place where the body burns and it burns and it burns, but it is never actually consumed. It's a place where people burn alive, so to speak, but they never expire. Jesus calls it the hell of fire. And if you want a sense of how horrible hell really is, then I think just consider for a moment the purpose for which it was originally created. Jesus described hell as eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. You say, well, I'm not as bad as Satan. According to Jesus' words here in Mark chapter 9, if you are attached to your sin, then you will go to the same place. And you will spend your eternity where Satan spends his. Your sin is so serious. Most of us want to think, no, no, it's not that bad. Jesus says, it is. It is unfathomably serious, your sin. Jesus called hell a place of eternal punishment. Your sin is so bad that it would take all of eternity for God to pour out his wrath on you for it. And it still just keeps coming. Your sin is unfathomably serious. Hell is real. It is horrible. And hell is final. And our text gives us a sense of this in verses 46 and 47 when it talks about people being cast, or, you know, this idea of people being picked up and hurled into hell. That is a final and decisive act of God. And it's irreversible, it's not like prison. Where you can do your time and then, hey, I did my 25 years and now I'm walking free. Once you're in hell, you're there to stay. No parole, no release, no relief, no new court dates before the judge. No, forever. It's final. And along very similar lines of it being final, hell is eternal. Jesus described hell as eternal punishment in Matthew 25, verse 46. And our text grabs that idea a bit in the language uh, of, of how it describes it as being a place of unquenchable fire. The fire is eternal. It is never put out. It can never be quenched. And undying worms. 
I do not say this as an overstatement. Once you have been there a thousand years, you will literally only just be beginning. There's a reason Jesus kept talking about it. Jesus is very clear that the final destiny of the sinner is hell, but that's not the only destiny he speaks of in this passage. That's one of two. So what's the second one? Well, the final destiny, I'm going to word it this way, the final destiny of the maimed is heaven. Three times in these verses, Jesus speaks about entering life or entering the kingdom of God. So who gets to go through the gates of heaven? Who gets to spend eternity in heaven with God? To use Jesus' picture, it is the maimed and it is the dismembered. It is the one-armed and the one-legged and the one-eyed. Remember here, Jesus has drawn a straight line from a person's sin to his destiny. Heaven's a perfect place. There's no sin there. God is perfect. God is holy. God is righteous and good. Not even one sin can enter that beautiful, holy, perfect place. And so heaven is for those who have lopped off their sin, so to speak. The person who enters heaven is the person who makes a break or perhaps even many, many breaks with his sin that could be likened to the amputation of a limb, the amputation of an arm or a leg from the body. The person who enters heaven is a person who, interestingly enough, based on this text, has sin in his past. The person who enters heaven was never a perfect person. He was sinning and he was stumbling and then there was radical action. He amputated his sin once, twice, who knows how many times. The text doesn't say. Because of his sin, his destiny was hell, but that changed. And that's the picture. And again, all this is pointing to how unfathomably serious your sin is. So Jesus says you must amputate your sin. So argument number one for, for that is the final destiny of the sinner. But Jesus makes a second argument and a very powerful one for why you must amputate your sin. And his second argument is this. It's the worth of a sin. How much is a sin worth? How much is your sin worth to you? According to Jesus, the way he lays it out, Jesus is saying no sin is worth going to hell for. And remember that Jesus is using various parts of the human body to represent sin and the struggle with it. And Jesus makes his powerful point with three, it is better than statements. Verse 43, uh, I'm going to reword the order just a little bit to help us grasp what he's saying. Jesus says, to enter life crippled is better for you than with two hands to go to hell. And then verse 45, to enter life lame is better for you than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And verse 47, to enter the kingdom of God with one eye is better for you than with two eyes to be thrown into hell. How much is your sin worth? Jesus is saying, listen, it's not worth it. No sin is worth that. No sin is worth going to hell for I was talking to someone who had attempted to help a young professing Christian with his addiction to porn. Uh, we might say in the language of this text, his eyes were causing him to sin. And the person trying to help said quite seriously, not as a joke by any means, but offering to help, would you like me to take your smartphone and drive over it with my car? And of course, that offer was turned down. And this person looked at the person trying to help as if he had just offered to drive over a small child. The young man was essentially saying, no, my smartphone, it's too important to me. I need it. How could I possibly live without that? And that's exactly how any rational human being would feel about their arm or their eye or their leg. But Jesus says, no, cut it off. Jesus is saying, you got to cut it off or there's the alternative that you must face. You will be cast into hell. There is no truce with sin. Peace can never be made. Cut it off. Tear it out. Your sin is unfathomably serious. You must take radical action. 
You must amputate your sin. It is that Jesus says, or you will go to hell. Your sin's not worth it. And you might thinking, you might be thinking something like this. And many, many of us could say we thought this at some point in the past, and you might be thinking it right now. If I were to become a follower of Jesus, if I were to give my life to Christ, if I were to become a Christian, then that would mean that things would have to change. And I mean, it could be all sorts of things. My lust. You know what? I like living a life without really any kind of sexual restraints, and I just do what I want to do. Or boundaries. My work. I really like doing business the way that I do business in a way that some might find somewhat questionable. Or my anger, bitterness, or unforgiveness. I want to hold on to that. I'm not ready to give that up. That's precious to me. My friends, I don't want to give them up or, or our good times. Or my pride. I've been telling people that I'm a Christian for a very long time. I mean, like, it's been years. Everyone thinks that I'm a Christian. And because of that, everyone thinks of me like sort of up here. And if I admit all this sudden, you know, like if I become a Christian now, then what that will show is that I haven't been for the last however many years, and that's embarrassing. I mean, the list could go on and on. But Jesus is saying, you're willing to go to hell for that? Hell is real, and eternity is a very long time. Your sin is not worth it, just as Aaron Rolston's arm was not worth it. Cut it off. And some of you may be asking this question, and I think it is a very, very real question that many of us might be feeling. How? What do I do? Or maybe this. I've actually been trying and I've been trying really, really, really hard. And no matter how hard I try to cut, 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 or work really hard and stop, 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 I just keep doing it. This is who I am. I can't stop. And I would just highlight for you that as you stand before this text, you actually stand in the presence of a physician. You stand in the presence of, we might even say, a surgeon. And what I'd like you to do is turn back and mark to an earlier chapter, chapter 2, verses 16 and 17, because this is part of the larger context of the book. Jesus, the one speaking these words to you in Mark 9, is a physician. And I think we could ask, well, what type of physician is he? Is he a cardiologist? Is he a neurologist, a pediatrician? What kind of a physician is he? What kind of patients does he treat? Well, we might call him a harmartiologist. You've probably never heard of that one, and you've probably never gone to see one. Because he is the only doctor of his kind. He is the physician of sinners. And that is what we see here in Mark 2, verses 16 to 17. The scribes of the Pharisees, we read, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors. I mean, that's who Jesus is hanging out with. And when these religious people see that, they say to Jesus' disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? It's like, ugh. That's so low of him. And then verse 17, when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician. He's explaining what he's, he's doing. Those who think they're well, they don't need a doctor, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. You want to know why, I'm, why I am spending time with sinful people? Because sinful people need a doctor. Jesus is the physician of sinners. And consider just his words that he speaks. If you turn back to Mark 9, uh, verses 43 to 48, these are words of a doctor to, to sinners who, uh, for these people, for any of us, not long after our earthly death, could very quickly find ourselves burning in the fires of hell. So what does Jesus, the physician of sinners, say in verses 43 to 48? He says many, many things, but everything that he says hangs on three phrases. Cut it off, verse 43. Cut it off, verse 45. Tear it out, verse 47. 
amputate your sin and whatever causes it. Now, those are difficult words to hear, aren't they? It's like a surgeon telling a patient that his leg needs to be amputated. I mean, that's a hard day. But make no mistake, as Jesus speaks those words, these are words of hope. Because what Jesus is communicating is, there's a remedy. If you're willing to cut it off, and if you're willing to tear it out, then you don't have to spend eternity in hell. That doesn't have to be your destiny. In fact, you could have the opposite, the antithesis of that. You could have life. You could have eternal life with me and God the Father forever in hell, or heaven. Let's get this straight. Eternal life. Now, I would insist that there is a certain way that Jesus wants you to read those words. It's very important that you and I, that we all understand what Jesus is instructing you to do because perhaps you're reading these words and you've interpreted them to mean that what you need to do in order to get to heaven is you just really just got to do something and start being really good and, you know, no more sin and lots of good stuff and you'll get there. But in John chapter 3, verse 3, Jesus, again speaking, he's speaking to a man named Nicodemus. He says, truly, truly, listen, I'm telling you the truth. Unless one is born again, he cannot see what Mark 9 talks about, the kingdom of God. You've got to be born again. Well, what's really interesting is you didn't birth yourself the first time, right? I mean, what did you have to do with that? Nothing. And you can't birth yourself the second time in the way that Jesus is speaking of. What needs, needs to be done in your life must actually be done by another person. And so when Jesus says, cut it off and tear it out, he, he's calling you to radical repentance, a radical severing of your sin and a radical casting it aside and turning away from it. He's calling you to make a decisive break with your sin. But remember that these are the words of a, of a physician. Have you ever heard of a surgeon who did this? He told his patient to go home, go to his garage, grab his hacksaw, take it inside, go upstairs to his bed, put something between his teeth to bite down on, and start sawing off his leg. Not here in Canada that I know of. That doctor would lose his license. No, you haven't heard that because when a physician says cut it off or amputate your leg, he's not telling you go home and get out your saw. When a physician uses that kind of language of cut off your leg, he's essentially saying there, maybe it's in a hospital room, listen, this is what needs to happen. Your leg's got to go. Now let's get you into surgery and I'll take it off. We've heard and considered the words of a surgeon, amputate, and along with that, I think we want to consider his work. God can sever the tie between you and sin. That's what Jesus is saying must happen. The ties between you and sin must be broken. God can cut it off. God can tear it out. And in fact, we read language like that in Psalm 103, verse 12, that says this, as far as the east is from the west, so far does God Remove our transgressions. Remove our sins from us. How does God do that? Through Jesus. Through the great physician. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 21 says that God made him who had no sin. That's a reference to Jesus. To be sin for us. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. What's that verse saying? It's saying that Jesus, God's perfect son, he actually took all of your sin. It's almost, uh, if you can picture him like grabbing it all and taking it and putting it on his own shoulders. And then what did he do? He took it somewhere. According to scripture, he took it to the cross. And there, as Jesus died and he was hanging there on the cross dying, God the Father in heaven turned his face away from Jesus, his beloved son, and he poured out and he unleashed all of his anger, all of his wrath, all of his fury, all of his justice on Jesus on that day on the cross in your place. You do understand that that's what 
what in your current state you will spend all of eternity receiving in hell. And Jesus Christ took all of that there that day on the cross. Remember, your sin is unfathomably serious. And the only way for it to be properly dealt with is through the cross of Jesus Christ, the death of Jesus Christ and his resurrection to life. Jesus paid the price for your sin in full so that you wouldn't have to eternally bear the cost of that in hell. So to go back to the surgeon conversation, Jesus is much like a surgeon saying to you with a leg full of gangrene, I can take, I, I can take your leg and I can save your life or you can keep your leg and you'll be dead in, in a few hours. At which point you have to, a, a, a huge decision to make, much like Aaron Rolston did. Jesus says, I can take your sin and I can save your soul. Or you can keep it and spend eternity burning in hell. And yet the heart of this physician is essentially this. He's, please let me take your sin. In fact, I've already done the work. Jesus has explained which one of these two choices is better. And you have a decision to make. And that decision is, no, I want my sin. I can't imagine life without it. Or Jesus, I, I get it. I understand. With my, with my sin, I am going to be in hell very soon. And I don't want my sin anymore. And so Jesus, great physician, take it. Take all of it. Get it out. I don't, I, don't, I, I, I don't want it. I want to live eternally. Jesus is calling you to a radical break with sin made possible by him alone. Jesus wants you to repent, which is essentially, Jesus, I am full of this stuff. I am full of sin, and I am destined for hell. I am a sinner. And to believe, to trust Jesus. Okay, Jesus, take my sin. You are the physician. Take my sin. Cut it off. Tear it out. And save me by your death and resurrection. Romans 10.13 says that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord Jesus shall be saved. And if you have not done that, I think one of the things that's so amazing is that you could actually do that right now. Your eternal destiny could literally change from hell to heaven before you even get up out of your chair. Because Jesus is so serious, you must listen to what he says about amputating your sin. And again, I am not asking you to listen to me. These are not my words. They are, they are the words of Jesus. Jesus wants to take your sin and save your soul, but you have to let him do that. And if, that, if you have not cried out to Jesus and said, Jesus, would you do that for me? Then why not ask him to do that very thing right now? Jesus, that's what I need. That's what I want. Please save me. If you're someone who claims to have done that, then here are two, I think, very heavy thoughts for you as a professing Christian. Number one, if you believe that hell is real, then you will act on that belief. If sin and hell are as real and serious as Jesus says they are, then why would you, why would I not follow Jesus' example and lovingly warn people and tell them about how to be saved? Why wouldn't you go talk to them? You don't know how much time they have. And hell is real. And one other big thought, if you turn over to 1 John chapter 3, verses 4 to 10, I think there's, again, I mentioned that this passage is not just for a certain group of people. This passage is for all of us. And so here's the second heavy thought. If you are not cutting sin out of your life, God gives you no, like zero, assurance or confidence of your eternal destiny. If you are not cutting sin out of your life, God gives you no confidence or assurance of your eternal destiny. You have no reason to think that you are on your way to heaven. Remember, this text is for everyone in the room. 
When a person cries out to Christ in repentance and faith, as I was just talking about and describing, the Bible says that God makes that person a brand new creation. And this is incredible. If you're a Christian, this is something to celebrate. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 17 says, If anyone is in Christ, then he's a new creation. The old has passed away. The new has come. And one of the changes that takes place with that newness is a change in the person's relationship with sin. He's no longer a slave to sin anymore. He's been set free. He, he's, been a, he's a captive that's been liberated. And not only that, God has sent his spirit to dwell within the person, to help him fight his sin and keep cutting it off and tearing it out and grow and grow to look more like Jesus. Sin is still a war. There's no question about that. It's not that when a person uh, cries out to Jesus, save me, that all of a sudden I don't sin anymore. No, no, no. Sin is still a war. But broadly speaking, the whole momentum of the war turns. When a person becomes a Christian, it goes from a, a, a total losing war where maybe, maybe you don't even realize you're even in a war. You're just sinning and don't care. It's a losing war. It's a war of defeat. And all the momentum changes to actually a, a winning war that will ultimately be won finally someday. And yes, the Christian loses some battles here and there and sins and has to repent and, and get back up and all of those things. But the war just keeps pressing forward towards victory. The, 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 the Christian never stops the battle. Isn't that awesome and amazing? I mean, that, that dynamic is so hopeful that if I am a Christian, then I can press forward. And that war, that all the battle, and all the battles of it run on the grace and help of God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, the help of the great physician. But if that is not happening, if that is not what your life seems to be like, that says something horrifying. And I want to show you that in 1 John 3, 4 to 10. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he, speaking of Jesus, appeared in order to take away sins. That's why Jesus died. And in him, in Jesus, there is no sin. And so verse 6 no one who abides in or is, who is tied in with Jesus keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. If that's the case in your life, there's just this practice of sin. You don't have a relationship with him. So verse 7, little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he, as Jesus is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning, on the contrary, is of the devil. For the devil's been sinning from the beginning. That's his practice. That's what he does. And so if that's your practice, you look like him. The reason the Son of God, Jesus, appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed, the gospel, the, the, the life of Jesus Christ abides in him. And he cannot keep on sinning because he's been born of God. By this it is evident, it becomes very, very clear who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil? Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. Nor is the one who does not love his brother. So here's the point. If you are not cutting lust and sexual sin out of your life, if you are not cutting anger and hatred out of your life, and again, with God's help and by his grace, and if you are not cutting slander and gossip out of your life, and if you are not cutting bitterness and unforgiveness out of your life, if you are not cutting envy, covetousness, and selfishness out of your life, and lying and deception out of your life, and all the rest, if you are not cutting sin out of your life, God gives you no confidence and no assurance of your eternal destiny. You have no reason to think that you are on your way to heaven. And that is a matter that you must settle with Jesus.
You may think that Jesus' words here are heavy and they are hard, but they are words of love. Jesus already did the work, and he's saying there's another way. Why don't you make sure you're, you're, you're headed towards heaven and that you are truly in relationship with me? So I just want to ask you, is that the case in your life? And if it is not, that can, as I said, change before you get up out of your chair. Jesus, I am a sinner and I am on my way to hell. Please save me. I don't want this life of sin anymore. Save me. I think our time is up here for the day. We're not going to get to our third matter that Jesus takes seriously. I'll let you read that on your own there in verses 49 and 50. But Jesus is so serious. You must listen to him. Would you bow your heads with me at this time? Just a moment. I want to give you the chance to respond to God's word. And the first thing I would say if if you realize, man, I, I'm who Jesus is talking about, as in I'm the person on, on my way to hell. Can I just encourage you to right there in your seat to cry out to him? And you're, you don't, I think I don't know how to pray. It's really simple. You just, it's just like talking to anyone, but, you, but you're talking to God. He invites you to do that. And to just say, God, Jesus, please save me. I need this. Make me a new creation. And if that's something that you want to do, I, w- I would love to talk with you about that. Or if that, maybe that's something you've done here in the last few moments. I would love to chat with you about that and hear about that. Or if you're, I'm still confused, I want to talk more, please come see me. I'd be more than happy to talk to you. Maybe you're sitting here and you're like, you know, I, I'm, a, I'm a Christian, but my battle with sin, I've not been fighting it. Or maybe you need to just get some things settled. You pray and talk to the Lord in this time, however he leads you. And uh, if I can help any of you in any way, and you would like to talk, please come see me. Let's, why don't you go ahead and pray, and I'll close us in a moment. Father, thank you for sending your beloved son, the one with whom you are well pleased, the one with whom your soul takes great delight, the one without sin. Thank you for sending him here to earth as a man. And thank you that Jesus spoke these very hard words to us. God, we thank you that Jesus spoke these words to us not to hammer us or beat us up. These are words as hard as hard as they may be to hear. They are words of love because you, God the Father, and Jesus, God the Son, and the Holy Spirit, the triune God, you are a God who does not want any person to perish. You don't want anyone to go to hell. And so thank you that you would lovingly confront us with our sin by sending your Son 
And thank you for his great work and his life of no sin and his death on the cross for our sin and his resurrection from the grave. And so, Father, we confess that our hope is in Jesus. We, we are not equipped to, to tear sin out of our out of ourselves, out of our hearts, out of our lives. We don't have what it takes. Only you could do that. Only you could help us in the battle that is the Christian life. And so we thank you for the gift of your son, for the gift of your spirit, for the gift of your love. And would you help us to, as we battle our sin, may we wage a good warfare. May we fight to the bitter end against our sin. And may we never sit there lying to ourselves, telling us that ourselves that because it's not as bad as it possibly could be, that it's not terrible. We deserve hell. The cross says that our sin is awful. Your sacrifice says that. And so God, may we, based on your love for us, be motivated to fight our sin and thank you that you have made victory possible through your son and through your resurrection we pray these things in jesus name amen well if you would look this way just a a few announcements before we sing one final song together Um, every week we just uh, highlight for our church family here that there are a couple different ways that we can worship the lord through our giving Uh, in person here the offering plate at the red table and then electronically, there's guidance on our webpage uh, how we can give of our gifts to the Lord. Uh, we're in the middle of a three-week Bible study workshop on Tuesday nights, and uh, there are two weeks left, uh, January 23rd and 30th. And if you want to come and just uh, pick up some um, tools, resources for how you can personally study your Bible better, I, I don't really mean physical resources like books and that sort of things, but uh, ways that, that you could just, tools you could use to dive into and dig into God's word for yourself. We'd be thrilled to have you join us so you can bring your whole family. Uh, we've had a great time so far. Uh, right after our worship service, we'll take 15 or 20 minutes uh, break for coffee and snacks and to fellowship together. And then after that, uh, we have a members meeting uh, to vote on our annual budget, deacons, elders, those sorts of things. So uh, members, please make your plans to stay for that meeting Uh, after our church service here today. And then one final thing, I just wanted to say thank you. I know many of you weren't able to make it to our preaching conference uh, last weekend. We had a great time. If you weren't able to make that, you got sick or your car wouldn't start or whatever the case uh, may be, I'd encourage you to go back and listen to those sermons. I think you'll be blessed and challenged and helped by those. Uh, But on Saturday night at the end of the service, um, I was given a gift by, I still don't, I don't even know who exactly, it came from, but several of you is my understanding. I'm a really nice coffee maker and a nice uh, Amazon gift card, and I just wanted to say thank you publicly. I've been really enjoying my coffee, and it makes it really fast, which is, I don't know if that's good or not. I just want to keep drinking it, but it's really awesome, and I just want to say thank you. We're enjoying it, and uh, that was really kind, and I hope you know I don't ever expect anything like that, but I'm very grateful, and so I just want to publicly express uh, my appreciation for that. All right. Let's stand and let's conclude uh, with one more song.